you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, David Seberg, and Steve Grosso. Tonight on Fast, check out shares of Cisco surging after hours. That conference call is underway. We will bring you the latest details as they unfold. Plus, where have all the corrections gone? A top strategist at Wells Fargo says he's solved the market mystery. He'll be here to explain. And later, it's a Bitcoin trading battle. The head of one of the largest retail brokers has a major warning about cryptocurrency. He says... It could derail the economy. The CEO of Interactive Brokers will join us to break it all down. But first, we begin where Closing Bell just left, left off. A surprise victory for activist investor Nelson Peltz, winning a seat on the board of Procter & Gamble after the recount. The stock is higher in the after-hour session by as much as 3%. David Faber broke the story. We'll be here shortly. But remember, this is a company, P&G, that declared victory on the initial vote count. And here we are, a reversal of fortunes here, Tim. Well, they declared victory, but they also said that they thought, you know, they, they could certainly work with, with Mr. Peltz's team. And I think you get to a place here where you have to wonder um, if we haven't already done a lot going into this. In other words, I think the entire proxy fight um, was at least something that illuminated some of the key issues at this company. These are not new stories. Um, it's about unlocking value in brands that in some cases have gotten stodgy and a company that might have more value if some of this was broken up. Even after the company declared its own victory with the vote, so so close. A lot of analysts are saying this is basically a clear message to David Taylor, the CEO, anyway, that it was a win for Mr. Pelt. So what's different? I look at it and say as a shareholder, mm -hmm. it's a win-win for the shareholders. I mean, they expose, like you just said, Tim, it unlocks value. It shows the areas that they can't unlock value. It forces management to get their butts in gear. So I look at it from a shareholder's perspective and say no matter what, the stock was a buy in the announcement that this, they were going head-to-head -head on this. And to Tim's point, this, this stock traded off from September about 10%. And it has rallied back uh, pr pretty decently. So there's a lot that went into the mix here. But I think ultimately the stock market will like it. And I believe that it will probably trades higher from here, not lower. Yeah. Karen, what do you make of this whole? This is one yeah. of the most expensive proxy battles yes. in, yeah. history. in history. Which always bothers me, the idea that the company spends the company's money, however <laughs> much of it they want, and the activist spends their own money. Sometimes when they settle, there's an agreement on sharing fees or something. But so th that seems unfair to me, but that's sort of the way it is. I, I wonder, I, I think your point about, you know, they heard what he has to say, which is important. It, it's one person, though, I think will be difficult to really move the needle if they're not inclined to do some of the things he suggested anyway, which they didn't seem to for some of them. What was interesting was that Mr. Pelson sound like that really bothered him because he said, you know, add a board seat for us and add another board seat. So he didn't really care about uh -huh. being a small percentage I voice on the board. I think he's confident in his ability to over time win over other board members and we've seen him do that other times. Right. He's got now he's got a, a place where he can speak from mm -hmm. versus just sit, sitting from the cheap seats, so to speak. Right. And now he gets that message out there more, and maybe the company actually starts to get a little more flexible. One thing I think is really interesting, if he does get on the board, I believe he will have access to all the minutes of the meeting prior to this. I think it'll be fascinating for him right. to read about how the they strategy. talked about him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now the question is really timing, right? How long is it going to take to implement change? And how long is it going to take to really move the needle there? You look at GE and say, 
that's going to take forever. Well, that's get, a whole different ball yeah. of wax, <laughs> isn't right. it? I mean, a completely different ball of wax. But my point is, it does take time to implement process and change to really have an impact on shareholders. I, I think they'll be able to do it. But but at some point, it gets down to what's this company worth, and what do you want to pay for a company that's right. making you know very low margin consumables in a very crowded world that's trading 25 percent expensive to the S and P on a trailing basis. All right, let's bring in CNBC's David Faber from 30 Rockefeller Plaza, who broke this news. Uh, David, any chance P&G challenges that recount since it was so, so close. You know, uh, there's always a chance, Melissa, certainly that they may choose to do so. But what I will tell you is that the firm that did this independent verification of the election spent weeks on it, right? It's been weeks. Uh, And the reason they did is because it was so incredibly close. In fact, let me read you the numbers here if you want to keep track at home. 971,953,651 votes for that man, Mr. Peltz versus 971,910,871 votes for the lowest director. So it's like 43,000 shares. It's nothing, absolutely nothing, razor thin. But they spent weeks going over this. And so it does raise the question that if P&G were to challenge it, after all of that review has already taken place, would it change the outcome? Uh, That remains very much unclear. Not to mention that given that victory, however razor thin it is, and their previous decision to declare victory at P&G, it would seem they don't really do themselves any favors by challenging. I don't want to get in front of their decision making. I don't know. I haven't had an opportunity to reach out to P&G, I should say, and, and find out what their thinking is. But one would assume that Nelson Peltz is going to probably take his seat on the board of P&G. David, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. Given how acrimonious this battle was, do you think that they'll be able to get past it and work productively together? Yeah, I do. I mean, Karen, you know, these things get nasty and then everybody sort of decides to be a lot more civil. You know, Peltzel raised Heinz, and I remember following that. That was a nasty proxy battle, too. Uh, and not only did he take his seat, but they've worked, they worked well together. And Mr. Johnson, the former CEO of Heinz is now involved to a certain extent with Tryon. So my sense would be that while these things do get heated, as you well know, um, there are there are adults and they will find a way to work together uh, in the boardroom. No statement yet from Procter and Gamble, David. No, uh, the, the the press release that's out is from Tryon, and again that margin of victory is. I mean, I've never it's point it's point zero, twelve zeros, Melissa. Point wow, wow, twelve zeros. <laughs> And one at the end in terms of the margin. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. David, uh, real quick, it's Tim. Do you think that, that management at Procter & Gamble is more of a buyer or a seller at this point in terms of all the pressure on these guys to look at the brands, possibly spin off? Doesn't sound to me like they're a seller. Sounds to me like they're, again, looking to, to maybe even grow through expansion. I think you're right. I mean, certainly they're, they, you know, I. Peltz said that he would not, uh, he was not advocating breaking up the company. But I think that was always a subtext and certainly a concern to a certain extent yeah. on the P&G level that, that he will push slowly but surely over time for that because he thinks that that will end up creating the most value, the most focus, uh, uh, get rid of a lot of the layers of bureaucracy that he claims are there and the costs associated with that. But that's not certainly been the case from the P&G camp, as you well know. They've been talking about the benefits of this company staying together and, to your point, uh, potentially continuing to grow both organically, they hope, and through acquisition. 
I hate to ask you to uh, speculate, David, but given what Mr. Peltz has said in the past about what P&G should do, and given the notion that Procter & Gamble may be more of a seller than uh, a buyer of, of things at this point in time, what assets do you think could be on the table? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know, Melissa, yeah. uh, what, ro what route they'll go. I, you know, what I can tell you, of course, having followed the campaign closely, is that was not his focus as much as it was saying that the company needed more focus, that it needed crisper decision-making, and that there are a lot of costs that could come out of the business, some that have been identified already by P&G, others perhaps not, and that he wanted to hold management accountable. Um, so we'll see. Uh, you know, what the future holds for the company there with Mr. Peltz on the board of directors. He did say to us famously he doesn't know how to spell the word lose. Looked for a while like he learned how to spell it, but apparently he maybe didn't. <laughs> doesn't need to so far. David, thank you. David sure Faber, breaking the news that uh, Nelson's, Nelson Peltz in, in Tryon has won by a very, very thin margin that very expensive an acrimonious proxy battle with Procter & Gamble. The shares are higher in the after-hour session. We were having this discussion about Staples being very expensive. Does this make the case that Procter & Gamble may be worth being in, despite being expensive based on valuation, because you've got this activist in there? Well, maybe, but, but again, what can he do? I'm not sure. We kind of already knew that Peltz, you know, kind of made his way in there in that boardroom somehow. 3% organic growth, uh, you know, is on sales is, is nothing to get terribly excited about, although they're slightly better than the industry. Um, over the last five years, they've, look, they've cut brands by 70%. They have definitely streamlined this company somewhat. They've cut expenses by over $10, $10 billion. You can make an argument that this is a leaner, meaner P&G, but again, it's not cheap. You know, North America is 45% of sales. It's not growing. Um, emerging markets is where they're getting the most of their growth, but, I mean, that's not necessarily enough to get excited about. So you say Pelz can have his Procter & Gamble. I, I think this stock rallied going into that event dramatically, gave up some ground, right. has rallied back. I do nothing. How about you, Karen? If I had to be in the space, yeah. I don't really love the space because mm -hmm. I think it's for the reasons Tim said. I think it's expensive. The growth isn't really there. It's not crazy expensive, and there is a dividend, but uh, if I had to own one, it might be P&G. And is it because of Nelson Belt? Uh, that's a little bit of it, but it's, it's, I do think that the, the, the whole proxy battle does put pressure on the board to, to really, yes, to do something. Yeah, yeah I mean, so I, think, I think, I think P&G is a, a good long-term bet. I'm not going to rush out tomorrow and buy it, but I think, you know, as far as the staples are concerned, they are pricey. I mean, they're one of the most expensive sectors in the entire market. So you look at it and say, are you going to go out and buy a, a, you know, a Clorox, or are you going to go out and buy, or, or buy Intel, or buy, you know, something at 14 times earnings. I'd rather buy Intel. Yeah, well, they're the number one holding, as you pointed out before, in the staples, in the XLPs. And, and when you look at this group, I do believe they're 12% of the XLPs. And I do believe that you'll probably see it run higher. I believe he'll make some efficiency changes. And eventually, even though he's not talking about breaking it up or selling off pieces, eventually, somewhere down the road, that's going to be a conversation. And I think that rallies the stock even further from here. He could right. run another slate next year. He could. He could. Yeah, I mean, and being on a board with one seat, you never know. Yeah. All right, let's stick with the consumer staples space. As we had mentioned, the sector has been rallying this month, along with the other so-called safety stocks like REITs and utilities. Our next guest, though, says there is danger in the group. Mm. Chartmaster Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macros at the plasma to break this danger down. Hi, Carter. Danger said twice. That's ominous. Uh, so here we go. There are places to hide in principle. Um, and I think they're places that are traps or not to hide. I like utilities. Uh, we think REITs aren't bad. But we think staples are a place that are, uh, I wouldn't hide. It's not safe. Um, let's look at a few charts. So this is a chart that takes you back to the 09 low. Now, um, take a look at the following. 
And this is the uptrend we've been in quite consistently. At a minimum, we could just stop right here. I think you're just going to come down to the trend line for the XLP. That's another sort of 5%. But let's really dig into this strength here, okay? So this is now the same chart on top, and it's the relative performance of the S&P. And I'm going to draw this line right here from the absolute low in 09. And what we know is that, as seen in the prior chart, staples as an aggregate are going straight up, but every dollar put in there has been a loser. It's going basically straight down relative to the market, which you might expect in a bull phase. But it's, there's no alpha here at all. Yeah? Okay, let's keep going. Here's the, here's the chart right here right now, last two years. We know that the, there was a peak last summer, and there's essentially a peak here. Let's talk about relative again. So this is effectively a new high one year later. But if I do the same exercise, yes, it made a new high. But what we know is it never made a relative high. What it was doing was underperforming. That's a problem. Okay, let's draw some lines and end with this. One thing we can see about this process right here is this is something of a head and shoulders top and we got the break. And where do we get the break? And now the throwback? The throwback, putting our head and shoulders top, we got the neckline break and we've thrown back right to that line. That's an inherently difficult level and the presumption is you're gonna fail again. Let's draw the lines one more way. Putting our head and shoulders top. Here's your neckline, the break, the throwback. That's where it should stop. I want to sell the staples. I do not want to use them as a place to hide. They are expensive. No thanks. It's pretty clear. Carter, come on over. Love it. Wow. Yeah. Carter, he's going to come on. I mean, yeah, why yeah, bother asking still, the question? He's in the first on, right? <laughs> exactly. So, Carter, we were just talking about Procter & Gamble with Nelson Peltz winning his proxy battle, according to Tryon. Um, does the Procter & Gamble chart look any different from the XLP? Not particularly. The two that stand out are actually uh, Walmart, which is uh, the only one that's making new 52-week highs in Coca-Cola. But you've got a, a sector where the top five stocks are 50% weight, right? So it's Walmart, Procter, Coke, Pepsi, and, and Philip Morris. And, and the fact that, uh, that they are expensive, this is your area, fundamentals, people who do that, but you know the numbers. You're talking about an area that's growing at 4.8% earnings, trailing 12, tech's growing at 20. It's twice as expensive with a P of 21 versus 24 for tech, it's twice, three times peg ratio. I mean, these are, these are real things. What is it? Yes, can an activist get in there and make it move around and make some money? But as a, as a bet, as a thesis, as a concept, is this where you want to go to try to win the game? So, Carter, you had pointed out its performance relative to the S&P. And when you said that this is not uh, atypical when you're looking at a bull market and the S&P is running. So right now, when you start to see the S&P rolling over and you start to see those utility bets, the staple bets, those are the ones that seem to be green on a day where you're red on the overall macro. How do you think that shakes up if the S&P continues to roll? What's interesting is that I do like certain parts of that complex. That's the point about bringing up utilities and REITs. Um, They don't have some of the structural issues that these have, which you see not only in the charts. Utilities are making new highs. Staples have been coming off for the better part of, uh, of three months. Um, but also, they're, they're sort of beloved. They ha- they, they're still enduring in the memory of the investment public. These are the great names, the household product names. They're the American icons. And, and that's not a thesis. That's nothing.
All right, Carter, thank you very much. Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macro. I just wanted to let you know that Procter & Gamble has issued a statement via Business Wire regarding the results. Uh, Procter & Gamble today sharing the proxy results. Um, Nelson Peltz is leading the other director in the vote by a margin of 0.0016% of shares outstanding or approximately 42,780 shares. They say the results are still preliminary and are subject to a review and challenge period during which both parties will have the opportunity to review the results for any discrepancies. P&G will disclose the final results after receiving the independent inspector of elections final certified report, which we expect in the weeks ahead. So Tryon's de declaring a victory at this point. Procter & Gamble still says the results are subject to further review. They are preliminary results, maybe not entirely unexpected. It doesn't make sense for them to dispute these results right here, right? It doesn't look good. It doesn't sound uh, you know, like a company that wants to be constructive. They should just wait for the final results, and it is what it is. Coming up, Mattel sinking after hours. The company rejecting Hasbro's offer to buy the company. Many shareholders considered a way out as uh, Mattel stock has been in the gutter. Tim Seymour is a shareholder. He'll weigh in next. Plus, buyer beware. The father of high-speed trading says cryptocurrencies could tank the market and maybe the whole economy. Thomas Petterfee, CEO of Interactive Brokers, will be here to make his case against trading Bitcoin. And later, despite the weakness this week, it's been more than one year since we've seen as much as a 2% sell-off in the S&P 500. So where's the volatility? A top strategist says there's a simple reason for why traders keep buying the dip. It's a fascinating explanation. That's ahead on Fast. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on Mattel rejecting Hasbro's takeover bid. Seema Modi's in the newsroom with the details. Seema. Melissa, it's certainly getting interesting. Mattel has rebuffed Hasbro's takeover approach. Reuters, according to sources, says Mattel has informed Hasbro its proposal undervalues the company and does not take sufficiently into account the potential for regulators to reject the deal based on antitrust concerns. This, of course, throws a lot of cold water over the potential combination between these two toy companies. Mattel shares are lower here in extended trade. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Seema Modi. Um, Tim, what do you think Mattel's game is here? Well, I don't think we even know what the terms were. Uh, um, so, again, the stock rallied on, you know, to some technical levels. But, but I think Mattel certainly has to drive a harder bargain. There's no question. I mean, this was a stock that was down dramatically. Look, at, you know, in the mid-20s, this was a takeover target. So I'm not saying that that's the reason why it's to go back there. What I'm telling you is that, you know, Margot, Margot Giorgiotis is the new CEO. They brought her in from Google. She's got a digital strategy. They're going possibly for a Hasbro strategy, which is more of an asset-light, digital first. We want to be on mobile. We want to be, you know, in the next gen of kids' uh, online toys. And, and arguably, they still have a portfolio of brands in Fisher-Price and in and in, you know, Cars 3 and in Barbie, you know, Steve, um, I think you really have a place <laughs> where the, these that. guys are far from dead. <laughs> right. So, um, look, I don't think they should accept the deal as it is. I mean, there aren't a lot of other people out there. When they say that the reason for that is because you're not giving us enough of, of, of a premium for when the antitrust guys step in, that, that, that's not something to get excited I appreciate about. you calling me yeah. Ken. And I do <laughs> believe that once you start to see these takeout bids, you know, float around a little bit here, to Tim's point, you have to drive a hard bargain. And then you start to see other people start to get interested and start to do a little bit of the, uh, of the uh, metrics concerning what the real price should be. So maybe it's not the mid-20s, but I do believe it's probably higher from here uh, instead of moving sideways. Okay. But when, whenever you see these bids sort of evaporate or the conversation goes, uh, is done for the moment, then you're going to see a little bit of a healthy reversion, sort of a give back in the stock. And then after a couple of days, another headline comes out and the stock pops 10 percent or so. Well, I mean, this, this is a business that's in secular decline. I mean, let's face it. I mean, technology has basically taken over 
the children's sort of appetite for any sort of entertainment. So I look at it and say, what are they willing to pay for it? I don't know. If you're coming from Google and you walk into a company like this, you're used to tech premiums. This isn't a tech company. This is a toy company. Hold on They're not going to get a premium. You can't, you know, maybe digital games are stealing the thunder of stay at home no. and play with blocks. But you can't tell me that toys are in decline, and you can't tell me that these companies who have, but who yeah. have a brand portfolio I mean, and who right, have licensing, who have, who have, yeah, who have characters that people want to own, and they can gifts? play in any format you want. Do you think this so, product right here is going to steal gifts from under the Christmas tree this year? Or no, but, but they, they, can, they can compete right there. Absolutely going to take it away. I mean, gaming is, you know, why can't Barbie be the next video you game? You don't think there's a secular change in, in the toy of industry? Of course there is. Of course there is. Do you think Mattel has has been in front of that secular change? No. That's why they have a new CEO. Right. That, that's why the company's gone from 48 so down to $14. For, why and by the way, their like rival, that? Hasbro, bitter rivals, by the way, is a very different strategy. I mean, they've gone asset light. Uh, they've gone with a place. They're not manufacturing their own toys. Right. In many cases, the Disney Princess uh, licensing deal, they stole that from Disney, and that's probably the way Mattel needs to go back. All right. Check out shares of Cisco. They're surging after hours. That conference call is underway right now. We will hear from the CEO after the break. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. It's the question every investor is asking. How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? No. The question is, why do traders buy every dip in the market? And a top strategist from Wells Fargo says he may have found the answer. He'll explain. Plus, here's what the CEO of one of the largest electronic brokers thinks will happen when Bitcoin futures begin trading. And he'll explain why when Fast Money returns. We've got an earnings, earnings alert on Cisco surging after hours. Let's get to Josh Lipton in San Francisco for the details. Josh. Well, Melissa, Cisco does have some new reporting results, and Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins began by walking through those divisions. For example, there's the so-called infrastructure platforms division, and that includes switching and routers, but also wireless and data center. Now, revenue there was down 4 percent, and Cisco's executives saying that it's mostly due to routers. As for the switching business, you know, they have Catalyst 9000. That's the company's new line of switches. Uh, Robbins saying that Catalyst 9000 has already been adopted by more than 1,100 customers in three months. He also talked in the call about their embrace of the cloud. For example, that new partnership they recently announced with Google Cloud. Um, he also talked about the applications revenue. Of course, they bought App Dynamics. You saw the applications division revenue up 6%. And finally, he talked about security, Melissa. Now, that was up 8% in the quarter. Listen to his take on that division on the call. What I think is differentiating it. And we've also... You know, we've been on a multi-year journey of selling software and subscriptions uh, against the threat intelligence and the malware intelligence that we have, and I think that's what's uh, continuing to pay off. Um, so I think it's, it's resonating with our customers, and, you know, it's an architecture that we can continue to innovate on, we continue to expand on. A final question there came on also tax policy and what repatriation could mean for Cisco. The company CFO uh, saying that perhaps repatriation could mean the company could get a lot more aggressive when it comes to buybacks. Melissa, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Josh Lipton. Cisco's up 5.7 percent. It's got a nice dividend yield, too, 3.4 percent here. Look, you know, th this is back to the future time for mega cap tech, and, and these guys are late to the party, and that's why this is very exciting in terms of big cap, mega cap tech. This is a ridiculously cheap valuation for a company that has put in the time. Chuck Robbins just said it. Uh, software and subscriptions is a high margin business. Gross margins are going higher. Meanwhile, the expense management is very strong. I think you stay along this name.
Yeah, a security that, I mean, it's smallest business in terms of dollars, revenue dollars, but it grew 8%. I mean, what does that tell you about the rest of that of that space? Right, but I think the overall problem, the macro problem is transforming. Obviously, this looks like where people are willing to take a step in and say, okay, after eight quarters of no revenue growth, we finally see some glimmer of hope here of turning the ship around from a hardware company into a streaming or, or a services company where you, you have the Oracles, you have the SAPs, is this still an IBM where it's a legacy, a legacy business where you're attached at the hip to something that can't be transformed? And it looks like the marketplace is giving it the benefit of the doubt. That's totally fair. Just, totally. just now. But it, there is a big machine that these guys have to turn around to actually move the needle other than one one off quarter in eight. All right. Well, remember <laughs> the four horsemen. Speaking back to the future, Tim mentioned Cisco was one of the four horsemen of the 90s tech boom, along with Intel, Oracle, and Microsoft. Oracle and Microsoft have come surging back since then, hitting fresh all-time highs. Meantime, Cisco and Intel have been left in the dust. So will Cisco, as Grosso mentioned, be able to regain those highs? Is this too big of a shift to sort of turn around at this point? I I don't think so. I think there's at least a floor into the stock, and I think you can. this is a company that you can absolutely move the needle on. I think strong, you know, solid free cash flow yield. Talked about repatriation. Those are big, big challenges uh-huh. for this company. I look at a, a, an Intel, and Intel's a name that I would be buying aggressively here as well. I think that stock can continue to move higher. I tell you, even listening to Braveheart music gets me and it's unbelievable. Like, that movie every single time. Weepy. Some of Mel's best work. Holy cow. <laughs> Braveheart. <laughs> Karen? I I, I don't know. I think this is interesting. One quarter. uh, I I was trying to think about it. Is it better today, up 5% with the news that we have, Mm. than it was this morning at 34-ish, not knowing what the earnings would be? Maybe. How many people were betting on another loss? You know, how many people, how much of this is a knee-jerk reaction to, oh, geez, I just, it was a quick turnaround. I'm going to bet against that the, the, the law of odds is on my side. And now they're going to miss again, and I'll collect and I'll cover right after it. And then they see. Tiny short interest, though. Right. No, but, but I'm just yeah. saying it's a bigger company. It's hard to tell on a day bet when you're, when you're really sitting there in a market that can be moved yeah. by very low volume, where people are just saying it's missed the last seven. It's probably going to miss this one. I, I think that's important. I think the positioning in the stock going into the quarter, there were very, very low expectations. The bar wasn't set high or low, sort of muted. So you look at positioning and say it wasn't a crowded long, it wasn't a crowded short necessarily, right. and now you have people repositioning people and are back pick- People are picking around for some value. But Steve has highlighted the, the, the key problem here. This company has done nothing. It's been at $49 billion in sales for three years. The free cash flow, too. I mean, if it's yeah. supposed to be a better, yeah. that's been flat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all these other guys, those are the three horsemen. Do not play that Braveheart music again because I won't be able to stay composed. <laughs> <laughs> if, I thought that was your band. You, that's not your band. you walked right into that. Um, look, the bottom line here is the, the jury is still out. But I, I think you have to go and get this one because I, Chuck Robbins has, I think, slowly Turn this thing around. All right, still ahead. It's the market mystery of the year. Why is everyone buying the dip? Top strategist says he's got the explanation. He will join us to explain. Plus, Bitcoin's magic touch, Square, Overstock, the CME, CBOE, all trading at 52-week highs as the companies embrace the cryptocurrency. So why is the CEO of one of the largest online brokers blasting it? We'll find out when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks selling off today, but the market's still sitting near record highs, and it could be thanks in part to a rising trend in investing. Bob Pisani is at the NYSE to break it all down. Hi, Bob. 
Hello, Melissa. You know, despite some flutters in the market in the last week, the S&P is only 1% from its historic high. Now, several factors are keeping stocks up, including record earnings and a global economic expansion. But one little-discussed trend may also be a factor in the rally, the rising popularity of index funds and ETFs. So ETFs are created by buying baskets of stocks that are tied to indexes. These ETFs then trade independently. But the underlying stocks themselves do not necessarily trade. The theory is that by creating ETFs, you've taken a certain part of the equity market out of circulation, this creates upper pressure on stock prices. The rise of ETFs has not been without controversy. Bank of America Merrill Lynch created a report in July saying ETFs were distorting the market and making them less efficient. Now, a lot of people disagree with that. I do. But there's no doubt that ETFs are becoming more influential because they're growing as a percentage of trading volume. In 2014, ETFs were about 20% of the trading volume. This year, it's about 25%. But don't overestimate the influence of ETFs. Look at the numbers. The total value of all ETFs in the U.S. is about $3 trillion. That's a tiny percentage of the roughly $26 trillion value of the U.S. equity market and the even bigger $38 trillion U.S. bond market. Hey, one more point, Melissa. ETFs are not just taking up a lot of stocks. There are fewer stocks to trade overall. The Wilshire 5000, which is the broadest measure of the U.S. stock market, they haven't had 5,000 stocks for years. At the end of 2016, this is the last data we have, it was down to 3,618 stocks. Blame it on M&A and a less than robust IPO market for the last decade. Back to you, Melissa. Wilson 3618 is not nearly no. as catchy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Bob, thank you. Bob Bassani at the NYSE. For more, let's bring in Chris Harvey, head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. He says that not only will passive invest investment keep the market afloat, it could even drive stocks to more record highs. Chris, welcome. How does that work? <laughs> thank you. Um, well, this is how it works. What, what we've labeled is Passive is a new QE. And what we mean by that is when you look back to QE, QE took a significant portion of the Treasury market out of circulation, putting upward pressure on price. We're seeing something analogous with passive. It's taking a significant portion of the equity market out of circulation and putting upward pressure on price. It's a, for now, it's a one-way trade. Money goes in, doesn't come out. Sort of a black hole. The other thing that we're seeing is a lot of active managers saying to us, Chris, we're having a great year. This is the best year in the last four or five. However, every time we've tried to rebalance, every time we've tried to reposition in the last three, six, 12 months, it hasn't worked out. Now we're in a seller strike. We're not doing that anymore. And what you're seeing is a lack of natural sellers. What has to occur? You have to have an adjustment in price upwards to incentivize the sellers to come back in. I get that argument. And in a bull market, <laughs> that makes complete sense. And in a market where we're near record highs. But right. the first whiff of a sell-off, you don't think that that works really sharply to the downside? So. What happens, or, or in my opinion, in my experience, what happens is until you have something extended. So what, what changes behavior? What changes behavior when people lose money? And when they lose money for an extended period of time, a, a whiff down, a, a little uh, sell-off, that's not going to do it. People aren't going to reallocate. They really have to lose a lot of money and over an extended period of time. So we think it's here to stay. So let me I, ask you something. This passive money has displaced what you call active money. How active is active money in getting out on the downside or, or piling in on the upside? So, so what we're seeing from active is, they, again, they've had a great year. They're overweight technology. Again, every time they've tried to rebalance, it hasn't worked out. So they're actually becoming less active. They're becoming, um, they're kind of sitting back and just saying, we're waiting. What they're waiting for is not clear. Sometimes I, I joke around, divine intervention. But a lot of times what we say is, 
when it goes bad, it, when it goes bad, it'll go worse. What they're all going to do and what they're all telling us is once the market rolls over, then that's when we'll sell. Once technology starts to under, underperform, that's when we're going to sell. Chris, and until then, nothing. Is, yep. is it, isn't even active using passive investments to hedge their portfolios, too? So you get sort of a double, double whammy where they're worried about those single stock blowups. Right. So they wind up buying the passive vehicle to of hedge course, their book. That's a terrible right. hedge because, again, you single right. stocks so move much hedge. better than right. an index. And I think you're right. But, yeah. but Chris, you also use the, the metaphor of QE. I mean, right. is, isn't this a function? Isn't this passive uh, generation all because of QE? You've had a central bank put. You take that away. I think this whole thing changes dramatically. Well, what we say in the back half of 18, we think the market's going to become a lot more discriminating because you have the ECB, you have the Fed, you have the BOE all taking back accommodation. And so at that point in time, the market should become more discriminating. It should focus on people who are better allocators. So this better- is really a short-term call that you're making in terms of the impact on the markets. I mean, I mean, not for, for us on fast money, but in, in general, saying, you know, things will change in the back half of 18. Right. You're seven months away. Yeah. No, this is. So what we're saying is everything is expensive at this point in time. You look at the 10-year, 2, 3, 2, 4. Investment grade credit spreads, 100 basis points or less. You look at the equity market, 20 times. If you tack on a 3% risk premium to all that, you're looking at mid-single digits, which is what we think you're going to get for the next 12, 24, 36 months. There's not a lot of juice left in this trade. All right, Chris, thanks for coming by. appreciate it. Chris Harvey, Wells Fargo Investment Institute. You know, look, I think there's one thing you left out is the quants, all the quant investors that are in there involved, and they're they're chasing the the sort of momentum, if you will. So you've got the momentum players that are really pushing things around. But if you look at the biggest institutions on the street right now, and you look at the commissions paid year over year, most of them, the big long onlys are down 50%, 40% commissions paid to the street. So they got penalized by turning the portfolio over in a tape that is sort of grinding higher. So when the reverse does occur and you've got the quants or the momentum sort of players, the algos, tape reading algos pressuring this tape, it becomes the reverse of exactly what you just described. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. 100%. What you see on the upside, you're going to see on the downside, but even more. Okay. Thank you again, Chris. Chris Harvey. (laughs) Moving on, we've got a news alert on the change to the S&P 500 telecom sector. Let's get back to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange for the details. Hi, Bob. And, Melissa, this is a little bit of welcome news. I'll just read you the one-paragraph headline here. S&P Dow Jones Indices says the telecom sector will be broadened to include media and entertainment, and it will be renamed communication services. Thank heavens. It's about time. Every time I put up the telecom sector as a sector in the S&P, I wince a little bit because essentially we're dealing with three stocks. We're dealing with AT&T and Verizon and CenturyLink. And we all know that these companies are interested in getting into the media and entertainment business. I mean, AT&T already owns DirecTV. So people have been lobbying for this for a long time to make the sectors broader and more inclusive. I think this is a very welcome change. Melissa? So, um, Bob, in this release, which just crossed moments ago, so, um, you know, we maybe not have gone through the whole thing, but they said they would include things like search engines, media companies. Does that mean that those stocks get pulled from the other sectors, I presume, right? So this would be a transformation of not just the telecom sector, but also the tech sector, because a lot of these stocks reside, or the consumer discretionary sector, because the media stocks are in there. Right. And remember, indexers will have to sell those stocks. And if you're buying the telecommunication stock uh, sector index or ETFs around that, you'll have to buy those stocks that are going in. So there'll definitely be some some movement overall. But listen, this is really good news. This is long, long overdue, and it absolutely makes sense. It's like, welcome to the modern age, S&P. <laughs> Bob, yeah. thank you. Bob Bassani at the NYSE. We should note that the uh, list of the companies will be available 
by August 1st, 2018, and this will take effect uh, on the close, after market close, September 28th, 2018. So we're looking at almost a year from now to make these massive changes. But these are wow, massive right. changes because it's not just, as we mentioned, the telecom sector. Things have to shift all so across TMT the board So TMT is now called here. C. I mean, I don't know. In other words, you, yeah, yeah. We're, communications. We're, communications. We're, we're getting it all out. And, you know, it, it's funny because it shines a bright light on obviously some really big stuff co- over the last couple of weeks. I mean, you know, this is Disney's a communication. AT&T, company. Time Warner, I, I mean, mean, the whole and, thing, and, right? And, and Netflix definitely is, in my view. So, you know, there you go. It, it actually creates, it's great that we talk about this right on, on the heels of passive investing, and it creates people to buy more of those ETF products to get people more in because if they want that single stock, they don't want single stock exposure. They wind up buying the ETF more of a passive fashion. And if you wonder if you buy the telecom sector today and then the telecom sector changes next year, do you then bank on the fact that adding social media, et cetera, could lift that sector from where it it is right now? Something's coming out, though, right? Some shift you need to have. You can't right. have 108. A lot of those yeah. names will be much smaller weightings in a new index. Right. When you have to throw Facebook in there, it's going to be at right. the expense of names. I mean, that's why you want to be active. Still ahead, the Interactive Broker CEO blasting Bitcoin in the Wall Street Journal today. So what's got him so riled up? He'll be here to explain. Plus, Target missing the mark. The stock taking 8% today on bad guidance. But the CEO says there's something investors are getting all wrong. We'll bring you those comments when Fast Money returns. I think ultimately you have to be out there taking some risk and being able to to go where innovation is going, to kind of decide up front that something you shouldn't do it. I mean, it feels like the early days of the Internet or the early days of the shift to the cloud, right? How many people said we'll never take data outside our data center, right? right? That's not safe. And then look at what, you know, my old boss, Mark Benioff, has done, for example. I know you know him well. So I look at digital currency like that. That was Square CFO Sarah Fryer speaking to CNBC's Jim Cramer moments ago about the company's recent venture with Bitcoin. Square hitting an all-time high today, and it's not the only stock getting a boost from embracing cryptocurrencies. Overstock.com, the CME, the CBOE, all reaping the rewards. But despite these returns, the CEO of Interactive Brokers, Thomas Petterfee, took out this full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal, blasting the cryptocurrency and the CME specifically for its move to list Bitcoin futures the second week of December. In the open letter to uh, the chairman of the CFTC, Petterfee took to task the way Bitcoin would be cleared, saying its price swings could be dangerous to the markets and suggesting it have a different system than other products. Thomas Petterfee, also known as the father of high-speed trading, joins us now on the Fast Line. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, thank you, Melissa. So, if I may uh, correct a little bit what you have said uh, previously in the introductory, uh, I am not at all against uh, trading Bitcoin. I think blockchain is a fantastic innovation and will have many, many uses. And Bitcoin and other uh, cryptocurrencies are great ideas. They should be allowed to be traded freely and used freely mm-hmm. to find their appropriate role in the economy. You just don't like derivatives trading for Bitcoin. You don't like the fact that the CME is going to offer futures on Bitcoin in December. So all I'm objecting to is linking Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies by federal regulations to the real economy, which would happen if we were to uh, clear Bitcoin along with other products in the same clearinghouse. Uh, so the, the stability of the clearinghouse is extremely important, and, and uh, putting Bitcoin together with other products will jeopardize 
the health of the clearing house and with that the real economy. It could be suicidal. That's my problem. So the threat to the clearing houses, Thomas, is is margin trading of these futures. So it doesn't matter if the CME puts a, a limit up or limit down on Bitcoin. And when I talked to Terry Duffy just the other day about that, he said we're looking at somewhere 20 percent up or down would be the limit. It's not that. It's the margin you know, uh, trading. But, but, but look, Bitcoin has risen by a thousand percent over the last year. It could go from it went from 700 to 7000. There is nothing to say that it couldn't go to 70000. And it could go to 70,000 just in a few days. And if the physically trading or the freely trading Bitcoin is at 70,000 and the, the future is limited to move just so much, say, only $1,000 a day, it would take uh, 63 uh, days to catch up. And no seller is going to sell the Bitcoin at the futures price when it knows fully well that the futures price is eventually going to 70000 So there is no way for the shorts to cover. And if the shorts cannot cover and the brokers cannot put up the money at the clearinghouse, the clearinghouse will fail. That's my issue here. How damaging could this be, do you think? It, it, it could bring down the entire economy. That's the entire problem. economy? That's correct. So this could be the next financial crisis that the United States faces. Absolutely. But I am not against trading Bitcoin. I am just against putting it together in the same clearing organization with other products. Would you offer on Interactive Brokers website um, the ability to trade Bitcoin and or even would you go to futures if your clientele wanted it? Absolutely. So, if, for example, the futures exchange requires short sellers to have the Bitcoin in uh, in, in a secure place against which they are selling it, then uh, definitely I would be in favor of, of doing that. So you would be in favor of offering the trading of Bitcoin, the asset, as well as derivatives on Bitcoin, on Interactive Brokers Platform. Absolutely. I think it's a great idea and it should be tried. Thomas, thank you so much for phoning in. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thomas Petterfee, Interactive Brokers CEO. Well, yeah, well, so the Thomas is, is bringing up some real structural points as yeah. from a guy that's, you know, been in the trenches and actually understands how the contracts work. And, and ultimately that if you put uh, limitations or circuit breakers on how much this stuff can move when this stuff can gap higher. Um, yes, you can you can ultimately be altering the, the, the hedging market for a number of people. And then suddenly people may be a solvent and da, da, da. very dramatic um, in terms of where this could go. I'm not sure it can go there. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, where we're going here is very obvious. And by the way, CMA doesn't make this announcement unless they really think that they're going to get right. approved. Right. And then once you do that, you can have a whole slew. We just got done talking about passive um, and, and, and ETFs. I mean, it, it's truly a place where you just need to be able to benchmark this and have the ability to mark products off that benchmark. You know, this shines a light on the fact that there's so much unknown about this. And, you know, I didn't go straight out. BK buys Bitcoin. I didn't go straight out and buy Bitcoin. I bought Overstock.com. And I'm up significantly on that. It's up 186% year to date because it has, it has that Medici arm to it, Medici Ventures, that has an initial coin offering arm to it. So valuations are probably still low there, but you get something that I can understand. Square testing Bitcoin payments up 200% year to date. That's the two ways that I'm playing. 
I mean, I'm a believer that it's revolutionary. I don't know the right price, but I can tell you I'd never be levered to own this. Right. Never. You never trade futures. No, I, well, if, you, if it's, I mean, you could do it with cash on the side, right, and not be levered. I right. don't, the idea of buying Bitcoin on margin is astounding to me. I would yeah. never do Coming up, Target tanking today and taking the other big box names down with it. But David Seberg's calling it the perfect time to sell one of those names. He'll tell us what has him so excited when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Walmart's set to report before the bell tomorrow. The options market's implying some interesting moves for the retail giant. Mike Coe is over at the plasma to break it all down. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Well above average activity today, and the options market's implying a move of about 3.5% up or down. We saw a lot of activity actually in the November 90 puts, which was making a bearish bet on Walmart, and also a big trade. The 88.5, 86.5, one by two put spread targeting 86.5, so some bearish bets being made. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trade. Time for the Final Trade around the horn, Tim. I think you have fresh data points to get long, Cisco, if you're not. Karen. Yeah, another another horseman. I don't know. We skipped the music. Intel. Oh, <laughs> Intel. Interesting, yes. Karen. I am a seller of Walmart here. I think the Q4 guide is going to be weaker than Into people earning. expect. Well, it, well, they report tomorrow. The report, I do not think. I think gross margins are going to be impacted by spend, and I do believe they get a lot of spend to do when it comes to keeping up with Amazon. Oh. Okay, I was waiting to be in. There you go. <laughs> I almost didn't recognize you. You're That's right. It could be going tomorrow. Square, square. I've been out long. I've been on this horse for quite some time. I do believe it runs even further from here. A host of reasons to buy it. Accepting or testing Bitcoin payments is just one of them. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, do not go anywhere. You can catch that interview with the Square CFO on Mad Money, which begins right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.